Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, we meet poets Grace Acasio and Justin Hunt and explore themes of family and relationships, which appear in much of their writing. Justin reads several poems that speak to the past. He also reads a section from his memoir where he's driving across rural land, no more traveled now than it was a half century earlier, when he was a young boy in the back of the family's Big Fin Cadillac on the way to vacation in Colorado. Grace reads poems inspired by a mother in the time when Rosa Parks took a seat. Her great aunt, who could overturn injustice like a mother right-sizing an upside-down child, and a grandmother whose scrapbook revealed a letter of her youth from an unknown admirer. We start with Grace reading a poem called Fall Festival, inspired by family hayrides at harvest time, and a poem by Justin called Afternoon on Slate Creek that captures the mood of a father and son together on a low bank, fishing poles in hand, bobber on the float. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Fall Festival. We, my Edward and I, take Zoe to a pumpkin patch where she dives into a hoard of pumpkins as though they will draw her close as cousins she's never met. She commands the hayride, first child to scramble up into the tractor-drawn wagon, first child to throw a bucket of hay over her head. We walk through a meadow, snatch wild flowers, cram our pockets with them, lean against white oaks and watch the sun slide down the sky like a child racing down a water coaster. We flash our headlights from Mooresville to Charlotte, letting people know harvest is the time to gloat over chill in the air, the snap of grass under feet, the scent of pumpkin buttercream, the yellow, red, and orange leaves of tupelos that entice us to sleep, even when we've been up all night tossing stray sandman thoughts out the window or in the trash can in our backyard. Afternoon on Slate Creek, after B.H. Fairchild. In his fifth summer, the boy fishes from a low bank, his father next to him, Sumner County awash in the rattle and whoosh of cottonwoods, the crackle of grasshoppers stripping brush. Behind them, cattle graze on parched prairie, shuffling over clumps of cactus and milkweed, rasping the ground with their swollen cowbrute tongues, moaning and hoofing as if to hew rain from shorn grass and dirt. From the west, a rumble. The father, nearly sixty, squints skyward through cataracts, sweat rippling his chin. When he looks down, his son's bobber jerks, then dives. Pull her in, he shouts. The boy cranes his pole, hoists a perch into sunlight, and shrieks. The father unhooks the fish, 
holds it in his palm so the sun can finger its soft red gills, the cold snag of its mouth. The storm drums closer. Locusts drill the air. Crows caw. Stink bait, slow water, and creekside weeds snake the boy's nostrils, strike memory as runs his hands over fins and scales. This moment, this place, his father's face. Poet Grace C. Acasio is a two-time Pushcart Prize nominee whose forthcoming full-length volume of poetry, Family Reunion, Broadstone Books, received honorable mention in the Queerest Review Press Fall 2017 Book Award contest. She placed as a finalist in the 2016 Aesthetica Creative Writing Award in Poetry and received the 2014 North Carolina Arts Council Regional Artist Project Grant. Her chat book, Hollering from This Shack, was published by uh, Hadia Books in 2009, and her first full-length poetry collection, The Speed of Our Lives, was published by Blaze Fox Books in 2014. Her poetry has appeared in journals such as Rattle, Court Green, Black Renaissance Noir, The Chafin Journal, and Minerva Rising. Grace is a member of the Carolina African American Writers Collective, a group founded by distinguished author Leonard D. Moore, and serves as an adjunct professor of creative writing at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Poet and prose writer Justin Hunt grew up in rural Kansas, and as is evident from what he reads on this podcast, his writing is inspired by his Kansas youth, his years living and working in Germany, and the urge to leave behind something of himself in his time. In 2012, Justin retired from a long international business career in order to pursue his passion for writing. His work has won several awards and has appeared or is forthcoming in publications such as Arts and Letters, The Atlanta Review, South Dakota Review, The Florida Review, Kansas City Voices, uh, Ibbotson Street, The Live Canon Anthology, UK, Strokestown Poetry Anthology, Ireland, and Spoon River Poetry Review. Justin's memoir, Dominoes Are Played at Joe's Place, a working title, a finalist in the 2018 William Faulkner William Wisdom Creative Writing Competition, probes his relationship with his late father, who was born in 1897 to Kansas settlers. Both Grace and Justin are members of the Charlotte Writers Club. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Grace, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Landis. And Justin, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I mentioned that we'd be addressing themes of family and relationships in your writing because those themes percolate in what you're going to be reading on the podcast today. So let's talk first about family. Where'd you grow up, Grace? Well, I grew up in Hartsdale, New York, which is in Westchester County. Um, I moved from the South Bronx um, when it was uh, turbulent in terms of the violence there. So I consider myself a Bronx girl, Mm -hmm. even though my parents moved when I was seven going on eight to Westchester County. Justin, you grew up not in the Bronx. I grew up in Conway (laughs) Springs, Kansas, population 1,000. Okay. Which is southwest of Wichita, about 30 miles north of the Oklahoma line. And so I'm sure life was a little bit different there than it is in Charlotte? Radically different. How how so? Um, It was a almost tribal existence. Everyone knew everybody else, and even though we weren't uh, technically blood relatives, Uh, There was a continuity of community, a closeness, a cohesiveness, uh, and everything centered, of course, on farming and that rural uh, architecture, or landscape, rather, which um, was critical to our lives, the relationship to the land. Um, And it was just a vastly different time in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. Uh, It's a way of life that really doesn't exist anymore. Now, Grace, you went from the Bronx, you said, to Connecticut, right? Uh, Westchester County in New York. Oh, in New York. Okay, all right. So so what size family do you come from, Grace? Um, a very small new Okay, all right. Justin, how about you? Uh, same is true. I had a younger sister. Uh, my father, however, was 53 when I was born and uh, had lost his first wife. Uh, I had two older half-sisters by that first marriage, so there was in some sense, a slightly extended family, but mm-hmm. the, we were a nuclear family of four, my father, my mother, and my younger sister. So Grace, some of your writing does go 
to your extended families? Do, do you have a yeah. big extended family? Is it uh, a large? I mean, you had a great aunt you're going to talk about right. later. Um, do, do you have a lot of relatives in your family? Well, it seemed that way when I was a child, but Did as it, I get older, the family is shrinking <laughs> and shrinking, and I think that was the impetus for me to write yeah. this manuscript. I, I, I realized that the elders were departing, and mm. I needed to do something to memorialize them. Yeah, and that was going to be my question, because you've written about your mother that you can read about, your great-aunt and your grandmother. And the question was sort of what drew you to write about these female influences in your life? What, what was it about their impression on you? Um, I think, though, I didn't really get my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, when I was growing up, especially as a teenager. And there is one poem that I'm not reading today about visiting her back in 1982 when I was uh, a fresh Howard University freshman. And to me, she came across as this old school person with <laughs> these old school ways who didn't understand me. I, mm -hmm. I considered myself like this Angela Davis militant. <laughs> um, so she had a problem with my hair. And I, I address that issue. Don't in all that grandparents poem. have problems with their grandkids' hair? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But uh, <laughs> but I came to appreciate her um, as I got older. I realized that she took several stands during her life that I wasn't privy to as a youth. And so I sort of I explore that mm. uh, in the poem I've mm -hmm. written about her. Good. And Ju Justin, and you, you talked about your father being older when you were born. Does that were your grandparents in the picture when you were growing no, up? No, my grandparents both died uh, within hours of each other, but of separate causes in 1919, almost a hundred years ago. Holy, wow! Uh, my grandparents were born in 1869. Not my great grandparents. My grandparents. You don't look that old, Justin. Uh, yeah. I'm a lot older than <laughs> than I look. Uh, no, I did not. They were not in the picture at all. Uh, well, same question for you that I gave to Grace, except in your case, in your memoir, you focus a lot on the relationship with your father, but you're also going to read a poem today about your mother when she's moving yes. out. So what, what drew you to write poetry and prose about your your parents and your family? I, that's a difficult question to ask. I, I think poetry is something that comes out of the poet. Uh, certainly that's the case with me. And... Uh, if I were to put an analytical hat on, I would say uh, about my father uh, that I felt distant from him growing up uh, and the thrust of the memoir, the spine of the memoir is my effort both during uh, the time our lives overlapped, uh, he died when I was f not quite 40, uh, and after his death to get closer, that effort to get closer to him, to know him, and in my mother's case, um, simply to capture moments of her uh, scintillating personality. Mm. She was uh, quite a presence, as was my father in his own much quieter, taciturn way. Well, let's talk a minute about the opening reads that you have here. Grace, you had uh, one called Fall Festival, and I, I think that brings us current to your own family, right? You and your Correct. Your, your husband and your, your, your child. Daughter, yeah. Daughter, yeah. And, I think you told me th this was kind of, you'd go to Mooresville for the family hayride, is that right? Uh, yes, yeah. I, um, Mooresville has a fall festival, so uh -huh. they have a pumpkin patch there. Mm -hmm. um, they also have an apple orchard that's uh, open in September, but we always go there in October when the pumpkin patches, um, you know, the pumpkins are mm. fertile. and. Um, so we go there and we pick out pumpkins and we ride on the hayride. And so what do you love about that time of year? I just like the crispness of the air that um, is just, I feel more alive. I feel yeah. more invigorated in the fall and I can't really tell you why. I've heard theories, some people say that you love the season that you were born in. I was born in October, so okay. maybe that explains it. Never thought about that. We we're recording here in... August, but by the time this comes out, it'll be fall. So when you listen to it, you can be happy. Uh, but you, you do. I, 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 I latched on to one of the phrases you have in your poem, chill in the air, the snap of grass under feet, and the scent of pumpkin buttercream. What's pumpkin buttercream? Oh, like a candle if you go uh, to yeah, the okay, store. Okay, all right. Okay, but it, you, you got the smell, 
you've got the, uh, the, the, the tactile feel when you're stepping on the grass, right. and you've got that sense of, you know, coolness that you like in the fall. Now, Justin, uh, a little bit different. You're uh, you're on the you're on the banks fishing here in this first one called Afternoon on Slate Creek. Right. Did you go fishing with your dad as a boy? Yes, uh, he took me fishing uh, probably as early as my third year. Uh, and this poem is really an amalgamation of those earliest memories. Uh, it didn't last long because his cataracts were such that uh, he had difficulty navigating the creek banks and that rough terrain uh, a few years later. Uh, but those memories stuck with me. And, of course, these, uh, this creek was in particular uh, one of my boyhood hunts. Uh, You're not fishing for trout, I take it. Not in that slow, <laughs> muddy water. We're fishing for bullhead catfish, yeah. uh, the occasional uh, channel cat, perch sometimes. And we ate what we caught. Yeah, well, I, I can uh, see, I can sense the sort of the, the day being you're laid back, you're— it could be a warm day. You got the whoosh of the cottonwoods, the grasshoppers, as you talk about. But then all of a sudden that bobber jerks, you know. And trout fishing, we say that's a drug. They say the tug is the drug. Yes, <laughs> it is a bit of a drug. I can remember it well. <laughs> yeah, when that when that bobber goes under, you know, your your adrenaline spikes, right? Yeah. Yeah, even as a child. And then you got this, your, your father unhooks the fish. He holds it in the palm so the sun can finger its soft red gills, the cold snag of its mouth. Uh, must be some uh, happy memories there on the bank. Oh, definitely so. Yeah. Happy. Um, and I think those earliest experiences like that, uh, for me at least, uh, are imprinted on me. Uh, we're, we're all products of our landscapes. And that's particularly the case with me in, in that little town in Kansas. We're going to move now to some more writing that uh, of each of yours, and, and we're going to start Justin first with you, and we're going to we're going to dive right into the to the family piece here. Uh, you've got uh, this memoir in progress, but excerpts of it have been pu- published already, and uh, you say actually the the manuscript is finished. Oh, it is. Oh, okay, yes, right. right, it's finished, and I'm trying to find an agent right now. Okay, well that's um, some progress. It's, it's in progress then. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. A, you you finished the hard part except for the hard part of getting it published right right but some of it's been published excerpts have been published right that's correct yes okay so let's talk about title for a minute dominoes are played at joe's place dominoes are played at joe's place uh is one of those titles that you encounter occasionally in reading uh, i think of uh laurie lee the british uh, writer's uh memoir uh, cider with rosie you i can't explain it uh, now without issuing a spoiler alert, uh, but there is a moment where my father utters those words in church, and it, uh, that's where the title derives from. He utters what words in church? Dominoes are played in Joe's place. And why would he utter that in church? <laughs> uh, he is actually making up his own um, words to hymns. As we're, I was in junior high singing with the adult choir, and we were processing at the beginning of the service down the aisle, and my father intoned, uh, mimicking a Catholic uh, mass, uh, dominoes are played at Joe's place. Okay. Now, now. While, while we were marching <coughs> down the aisle to probably something like a mighty fortress is our God. Okay, uh, it makes so, more sense now. Okay, yeah, he had quite a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, and, and speaking, let's talk about uh, a sense of place here because mm-hmm. you're you're in a rural part of the country in Kansas, and I think uh, with your father, you said he had a sort of a way of describing that area. Yes, um, my father was not one to speak of his emotions, and one of the things that I found I could do in my 30s uh, when he was uh, 90 and in his early 90s was record his stories and I saved those uh, years years later listened to them over and over again then it occurred to me that he used the phrase out here to describe the geography and when he'd do that his arm would reach out sometimes like a needle and point in the direction of where his story took place. Uh, Sometimes it wasn't as uh, direct as that, but he might say, well, those cattle were out here on Slate Creek, or we got out here about two miles north. And so out here, 
it laces his recordings throughout. Uh, and in the memoir, I give several examples. Yeah, you uh, said, I like the one, so I had the pleasure of helping dig the grave for those pigs somewhere out here. Somewhere out here. <laughs> and then he would motion south of us where my grandfather's uh, killing pins were. Yeah, and it says, uh, yeah. in the Depression, Dad once said, the lowest land price I remember was the Thu Quarter out here, a full 160 acres, which sold for $3,500. Right. Yeah. So out here is a pretty big place. Out here is, um, <laughs> it's, it's both, it's always present. Uh, it's always inside me, at least. Uh, and so my relationship with the land there, with that landscape is, is a bridge really to my father and it came to me uh, later that in many respects he is that landscape mm-hmm. and you've got a piece here mm-hmm. uh, from that uh, memoir you're going to read and just to set that up it, it it's july of 2013 is where you're going to start with this you're going back to the land of your youth here and right. you're and you're remembering things of the past anything else you want to say before you start no that this is based on an actual trip i made to kansas in 2013 and uh it's a memoir so i i hew to fact as closely as possible all right well let, but i think that's uh, we've given the context for sure. this, so all right well let us let us have it it's july 31st 2013 but it might as well be any time i've just been to dodge city to visit dad's 86 year old nephew And now I'm on Highway 42, driving east through Pratt and Kingman counties toward Conway Springs. This is the route that Dad, Mom, my sister and I used to take on our way to and from vacations in Colorado in the 1950s and 60s. Always on our way back home, we would head east from Sawyer and glide into the westernmost end of country we recognized as ours, rich farmland gnarled trees along the Shikaska River and its nameless tributaries, slopes and swells imperceptible to those who did not grow up on the plains, tiny towns like Zinda, Spivey, and Rago, and the seldom-used rail line that strings them together, old wooden grain elevators clad in torn and rusted sheets of corrugated steel, newer concrete elevators whose massive white silos loom for miles above the flat land. The road is no more traveled now than half a century ago. In the nine miles between Sawyer and Isabel, I don't encounter a single vehicle. From Isabel to Nashville, I meet only a lone pickup. Its driver waves as if he knows I am of this place, this expanse of earth and wind-soaked silence. The land pulls me into early years. I can see my parents and sister heading west to Colorado in a big fin Cadillac and I am in the car with them. As I roll east in my 2013 rental car, I drove close to the oncoming Cadillac, close enough to make out Dad's face through our bug-spattered windshields. He hasn't lost his right eye yet, is still at the wheel. And then it hits me. I am moving in two directions, hurtling both east and west toward myself and gaining speed in the pull of the two cars' imminent crossing. The Cadillac zooms past, and I begin to slow down. I see Dad, stroke-ridden, flat on his back as we said farewell in November 1989. I see Mom as she drew her last breath two years ago this month. I think of our house in Conway Springs, the 119 years our family lived in that town, the sale we closed on Valentine's Day last year, all of it gone, gone for good. And yet, as I drive further east, I realize that Dad and I are still drifting across the eons. We're still headed down an empty Kansas road in an old Cadillac. Highway 42 still winds through the 1950s and 60s, within me, but also outside of me, in some place real and close by, so close I can almost touch, hear, and smell it, just as it was. On this summer afternoon in 2013, I cross the fertile land and look to the long horizon. I lower the window and inhale the sharp scent of wild sunflowers and pungent creek bottoms. A mile west of Adams, I pull over to the shoulder, stop, and get out. Legions of grasshoppers 
arc through high weeds, and I am lost in the pulsing din of their electric wings, the fireburst of their staccato flapping. The Shakaskas cottonwoods shimmer and rustle, their DNA drawn from the ancients standing in their midst, dead, white-bleached ancestors whose bony fingers curl skyward as if to claw something unseen back to earth. I get back in the car and push on toward Conway Springs. Time bends along the road, and for long minutes I float. Like an amphibian in primordial brine, I am out here on the land sea Dad and I claim as ours. So, Justin, as you read this piece, um, what, uh, what, what feelings come to the surface for you? Um, it's hard for me to keep my composure when I read that. Mm-hmm. Uh, feelings uh, about that place, uh, the landscape, uh, but more particularly how that landscape evokes memories of my father and the, uh, the dimensions of his life and our relationship that I had discovered long after he was dead. And that's part of the memoir, really. That's the, the thrust of the memoir is to probe uh, that relationship uh, and to be able to say that after writing it, I came away know, convinced, certain, that I know my father far better than I did when our lives were actually overlapping. Mm, that's great. Yeah, Grace? I thought it was interesting how the innocent you meets the inexperienced you in the form of the two cars hurtling toward each other. Uh, Thank you for saying that. Uh, I think it's a play on time and the elusiveness of time and how we really don't quite understand time, uh, but we live in it. Uh, And it's also, I think, uh, representative of the way a lot of memoir unfolds uh, not just with me but with other writers and that is that there is the voice of the young person recalling something in the past uh, from the perspective of the past and then there is the voice of an older person and in, in my case uh, a man in his 60s looking back and reflecting, ruminating on what that all was about. Mm. So, uh, yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. And uh, Grace, we're going to shift uh, to you just for a second with uh, a piece <clears throat> that uh, is entitled "Bennett Sisters React to Rosa Parks's Stance." Let's set this up just a second. I believe you told me you imagined your mother, who at the time was a black female college student in, that, this, in this time period. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, she attended Bennett, which is a a predominantly black college, all black female mm. college, and mm. still is. So you were trying to put yourself kind of back in that time period and kind of imagine what it might have been like if you were attending college at that time? Well, not, not really me. Okay. I'm, I'm like, as I say, this particular project, family reunion, was my way to memorialize my family. My mom died mm. in 2008, and I do mm. have a poem in uh, the forthcoming collection mm. that talks about actually um, coming across her once the police officer opened her apartment door Memorial Day weekend of 2008 and finding her dead. Um, and again, it goes back to that theme of losing the elders. Mm. Um, this particular poem, I'm imagining her as this young, vibrant woman without the cares of the world upon her, um, free to think for herself. All right, well, that, that's a good introduction. Let's, uh, let's hear it. Bennett's sisters react to Rosa Parks' stance, Bennett College, Greensboro, North Carolina, 1955. We press our ears against the floor model radio. I probe the knobs like a madwoman. Just before news of Rosa breaks, our fingers labor at minuscule tasks, inking pens, creasing papers, rubber stamping envelopes. The message of Rosa's defiance from a voice like a symbol shatters when sends odometer needles flying. The broadcast unleashes our tongues with thunderclaps of words. 
for once. We doff our hats, ignore prim and prying looks of dons and deans trolling our student union halls. We wipe our hands on our starched, pleated dresses, toss formality out rectangular windows. I gawk as Glenda, blood sister, bears flesh just above her knees. We cross the campus wielding megaphones, drill Rosa's story into each brick building. We strike our bell a thousand times, immerse ourselves in sunlight, stand guard over the quadrangle, pose before magnolias and oaks. Our breath hovers over Dan River. All right, Grace, so I've got this image of... uh a group of excited college students crossing campus with their megaphones. <laughs> yes. So d- did, uh, did did this poem excite you, get your juices going again, when you started thinking about that time period? And Well, I mean, I, you know, as when you write poetry, you don't realize what you're doing. I think mm. it was... In you don't? I, I'm not a poet. So yeah, it, <laughs> no, it's, I, it's, it, it's, it's... Does it come up, just it, percolate? It, it, it just yeah. comes out um, huh. subconsciously. Okay. And then there's the aftermath. It's in the aftermath that you realize, oh, this is what I have constructed here. So I think for me what really resonates is that last line, Mm -hmm. our breath hovers over Dan River, that the power, the power of the voice, the power of breath that um, could empower these young women with this megaphone to announce that... Um, with this one act on Mrs. Parks's part, time changed. Uh, the milieu of the United States changed. So I felt proud, um, not in an arrogant sense, mm. but just proud that this is part of my history Mm -hmm. it's it's america it's a part of america's collective history Mm -hmm. but it's also part of my personal history and i I made it a part of my history by um surrounding my mom with these women who became a part even though maybe historically this may not have happened but I inserted them into this history. Mm -hmm. I think what Grace does so well in that poem is put us there. There are just so many details that anchor us to this location. And she conveys also a visceral excitement. Uh, One of the lines I love is sending speedometer needles flying. (laughs) Uh, That that, uh, shows or or captured my imagination with the excitement of that moment, even though I'm not African-American, but I can only imagine. And then that hovering at the end Mm -hmm. is very powerful. Thank you. We're going to take a short break here. When we come back, we're going to do, we're going to do some more uh, readings uh, from, from family and uh, from the past and talk more with uh, Grace and Justin about their work. So, uh, oh, we've also got the uh, the writing life segment. So, stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here at the uh, Park Road Books Pick Shelf. Alex, how you doing, Alex? Hey, I'm doing great. So, tell us some books you got. All right. Well, my first one is Beijing Payback by Daniel Nee, and it's a book about a Chinese American family, and the father is murdered in their home in his office, and it's sort of a mystery where they have to discover his mob ties all the way back to Beijing. Bizarre cover. You got the dragon on the cover. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very colorful, very pink. Um, So my next book is one of my favorites this year. It is uh, Into the Drowning Deep by Maria Grant. Um, And it's about killer mermaids. Killer mermaids. Killer mermaids, (laughs) yeah. Well, I guess we don't need to say anything else about that. Nope. If you need more than that, it's probably not for you. All right, okay. Um, So my third book is a uh, nonfiction book. Um, Negotiating the Impossible by Deepak Malhotra and it is a book that describes negotiating tactics in a very concise way and uses a lot of cool examples like the drafting of the U.S. Constitution or how to you know resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis it's a it's a fun one interesting book people uh, resolving problems good oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my next book is called Friday Black and it is by Nana Kwame 
out of Jay Brenya. Got spotters on the front there. It's a really cool cover. It's very colorful. Um, And uh, it's a series of short stories, and they're very um, introspective and beautifully written, and they're very dystopian and sci-fi as well. So they're, I kind, I feel like it kind of covers a very wide area. Interesting. All right, you got one more. All right. This book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Abram Kendi, and it's a very dense book, um, and it describes racism, what it is, and how it affects people, and uh, yeah, it's been a very powerful read. Well, sometimes people can be dense about that subject, so maybe they read this book, right? <laughs> very true, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. one for everybody. Well, Alex, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back with uh, Grace Acasio and Justin Hunt. Uh, got some great uh, family poetry here. Um, the next, uh, the next piece up here, uh, Grace uh, is going to be reading, is. Well, Grace, give us the title. Great Aunt Rudy. All right, tell us about Great Aunt Rudy. Um, she was eccentric. Um, she lived with my husband and me back in the mid-'90s, and she was difficult. She was rather difficult, very bright woman, but um, a little paranoid. There were mm. just things about her past when she would speak you could tell she was a little bit paranoid about certain um, segments of her history, but I thought she was a wonderful person. She had this old school Southern charm, and I'll, I'll just give you an example of that. She would sit out in the chair on our front lawn, and we have a neighbor, Larry, who wouldn't say boo to us, but he would grin and come up and say, hey, how you doing to her? And my Aunt Rudy, um, and of course the name is changed, altered a little bit mm. uh, to protect the identity of family mm. members. But uh, she would literally wave at each and every car that passed. So we have a house that sits <laughs> on the corner, and I mean... Only Aunt Rudy could do that, I mean, but she just was so friendly, and um, I don't know how to explain it. She just had that really old-school Southern charm that she could get a snake Mm. to reveal itself. Well, my my wife's family grew up in... uh sort of rural Kentucky they used to call that throwing up your hand you know when the car goes by right you throw up your hands right right (laughs) let's hear great aunt Rudy great aunt Rudy could it be your rant was not meant for me but for shadows tugging at your sleeves patty rollers you might have dreamed your mind consumed by the vision of you as negress petticoated shifted and jacketed during slavery I always believed your words could overturn injustice like a mother, right-siding an upside-down child. The smile you wore most days was crooked as a broken hook-and-eye door latch, but I sought you out anyway, implored your hands to tell secrets of your girlhood in South Carolina. Did you seek shelter in brooks near your childhood home? Could Brooks offset flickers of white hands dismissing you when you entered five and dimes? After you departed my home, I kept your wash basin, perhaps to begin an ablution of our past, a way to untap our trickly connection until it teemed, fertile as a rainforest. I wanted to consult you like an older sister, wrap my arms around you as though you were a live oak, infuse your sap into my veins. At times, your glare uprooted my heart, turned its soil to suit. But then, I discovered your artful tongue stories of how you apprenticed under Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, groom students to hammer tent poles in front of courthouses, mechanics shops, ice cream parlors. 
The day you left my home for the hospital, I found the pixie girl photo of you. The pixels of your eyes shine tawny olive as a wood thrush. Those days you lived with me, I sunk your red clay deep into my nails, inhaled, never exhaled it, spread your loam all over my skin like a lotion that never expires. So, Grace, eccentric, but yet lasting memories. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, speaking of memories, let's shift, Justin. Uh, you, uh, one of the things uh, I learned about you is that you speak German fluently, and you spent a lot of time uh, in Germany, right? Lived there eight years. Lived there eight did years. did business 35 years plus in Germany. And you've got a, a title here for your for your next reading. Uh, I'm going to let you say it because so, I'll butcher it. So. Auguri. Auguri. And what does Auguri mean? Auguri, uh, I learned later, is from the Italian, which means best wishes. It's often said uh, in connection with happy birthday, tanti auguri, uh, and it literally means best wishes. Uh, and this character um, or the protagonist, however you want to describe the person that you're featuring here in this poem. Tell us a little bit about her. Uh, she is the mother of one of my dear friends in Germany, a uh, former neighbor uh, named Michael, uh, and we visited her. At, she was 92 at the time, living in uh, a retirement home and confined pretty much to a wheelchair. Uh, she was, uh, I had met her, of course, during the years we lived in Germany, but she uh, was especially uh, warm to my wife and me, uh, served us wine. We talked for quite a while. Uh, she's of that generation who grew up in what is now Eastern Europe or parts of Poland and uh, even an enclave of Russia, Kaliningrad, uh, who were forced out uh, at the end of uh, World War II by the advancing Red Army uh, and could not reclaim their land there. Uh, Europe's geography changed, the, the, the national boundaries shifted so radically. But it was that encounter with her uh, and her repetition of the word Alguri, uh, which I had never heard anyone use before, and I, I discovered later that it means best wishes, but it was more than just best wishes. It was, uh, in a way, uh, almost an issue of farewell. Uh, mm. And so the, the moment captured me. That's a little right. bit of the background. Well, let's hear it. Auguri. Auguri, she says, as we stand to leave, her years sunk in a wheelchair, voice laced with old partings. Those cold nights she fled while the Red Army ravaged her home, land she never walked again. Auguri. No mere gesture this, no polite wish of luck, this longing that spews from the augury of farewell, the calculus of birds that flew her 92 summers and pecked them down to this moment, eyes that peer into final days. As we near the door, she waves, laments having served us wine. Schnapps wäre besser gewesen, she says. Liquor would have been better. As if we should have lunged into spirit, a two-fisted guzzling of essence, a drunken drumming of memory, as if we should have drowned regret and time itself with one last story, then another before we slip away. Auguri, she says. I do this segment here where I try to ask a few questions of writers, um, and, and as, as poets, uh, I'll really learn from you a little bit because I don't know as much about this area. But for each of you in your writing of poetry, do you have a routine that you follow, Grace? Yeah, you know, I've been to a lot of writing conferences where poets will say, well, I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and I start writing before my family gets up, or the best time of the day is late afternoon or early evening. And I think um, years ago, I would say early afternoon was my time. And honestly, I just, I just write now. Uh, I just grab um, snippets of time here and there. Um, and, you know, I haven't I'm so into the production process right now. I think that the creative 
uh, aspect of my mind. It, it's on vacation right now, <laughs> honestly. So, right. so you got to um, compartmentalize. you got to do one and, yes. the, and then the other. How, how about you, I, I could really relate to what Grace just said. Uh, trying to get a book published, uh, trying to find an agent is so all-consuming that I feel that uh, parallel to uh, some family situations we've had to deal with uh, uh, are our barriers right now to the more creative side. I, I still manage to come up with a poem. I don't have a, a set routine other than to uh, do most of my composition and revision earlier in the morning. I'm sharper then uh, after I've had breakfast. Um, I may have taken a long walk with our dog. Uh, as to the origins of poems, they come to me with a phrase here or there, a thought, and as Grace said in an earlier segment, it's not as if I map it all out and, and know where I'm going with it. If there's no surprise in it for me, generally it's, it's, a, it's a bust of a poem. Mm. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, mm. I have to uh, somehow channel some inside force within me and they don't always come. Uh, it's, it's not like writing the memoir was, uh, where I would outline, uh, I never wrote from an outline, but I would write um, notes about specific memories with my father, and then I would put my rear end in the chair and sit there until something came out. Poetry is, is different for me. Um, mm. It just has to come out. So, But generally speaking, I try to write down notes when something uh, a thought or maybe an insight occurs to me or maybe even just a phrase and then i'll work with it in the morning when i'm really clear do either of you carry a notebook around where you jot down things that come to your mind do you do, you do that grace again i used to when i was a student at sarah lawrence college oh. in the mid 90s i'd have a notebook or i used to go on the bronx river parkway mm -hmm. which is a very scenic uh, mm -hmm. parkway and it inspired me, so I would have these ideas play in my head, and as soon as I would get home, I'd write them down. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I, I guess I don't do that quite as much as I used to. How about you, Justin? Uh, no, uh, I do keep a notepad by my bedside, on the bedside table. So, you could, so if you remember it late at night, you can write it down and remember Sometimes it I process stuff in the <laughs> middle of the night and wake up. Uh, more often than that, though, I might have a dream. Uh, and I've written a, lot, a number of poems that are inspired or informed by dreams I've had or are just outright dream poems. So I try to capture those when I can. And again, it's erratic. It doesn't come to me uh, with great frequency, but I do keep that uh, by my bedside. Well, I think that the best poems are the ones that the muse prompts, and, mm. and those, those are rare occasions when mm. a poem comes out fully fleshed, fully formed. In the other instances, you're just sweating. I mean, mm. you're just they're doing 15, <laughs> 20, 25, 30 drafts. I mean, yeah. I did this poem years ago about Greta Garbo, and it took about 30 drafts of it. It, mm. it was really painstaking. So mm. Some of them just come to you, and some of them is like work. Huh? Exactly. Yes. And, and exactly right. What a blessed moment it is when they come that way, but it is, yeah. it is at least with me, very, very rare. So let's do it sort is. of a, we're doing family, we're doing memories. I'm going to do a look back in time question here. Grace, uh, you've been writing, you've been publishing for a while. If you could tell your younger writing self something very helpful that you didn't know then that you know now, what would you tell her? That's a really great question. Um, I would tell her not to spend too much time imitating other poets. Um, my very first writing teacher out of college, she had me imitate all these poets, um, William Carlos Williams, Wallace Stevens, and I found it very helpful, but I also got stuck. I, it was a, a mental block because I was so busy trying to write like them that I did not, I was delayed in the development of my own poetic voice. Mm -hmm. So I, I would tell my younger self, move on, no more than six months of this stuff. You need to get started on your own voice. Mm -hmm. How about you, Justin? You, 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 so you 
retired to focus on this passion of writing, and you've been hard at it here for a while. Um, what would you tell your younger self? Well, my younger self as a writer was uh, myself at age 62. So you can remember that pretty easily? Pretty easily. It's only seven <laughs> years ago. Uh, but, but assuming you've learned something in seven years. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, would, um, I would tell myself to uh, fret less about production and focus on what really matters with the writing, uh, to reframe the question over and over again for myself so that I never lose sight of that question is, and that is, why am I doing this? What is this all about? What is life really all about? Uh, and worry less about uh, how that appears to other people uh, and to focus on the writing itself. So I'm gonna do a final question here and we're gonna jump back into <clears throat> your readings to finish up today. Um, Grace, how has your writing journey helped shape your life? Wow. That is an incredible question. <laughs> I'm glad she's answering yeah, it first. It's okay. not, not easy. Maybe I should give it to Justin first and come back to you. Yeah. Uh, um, I would say there have been different phases of my writing. Um, I think I was in incubation mode when I was in my early 20s. I didn't really know a lot. Um, when by time I got to Sarah Lawrence for my MFA, uh, thanks to Thomas Lux, who was a magnificent poet and, and, and really a great performance poet in his own right, I learned the craft of writing poetry. And then so I, I went on from there to postgraduate school. What do I do with this degree? Uh, is it doable, workable? Um, and I started teaching, uh, that, which got me off the track of writing. I then realized it's important to get back to my poetry, and I came across the Carolina African American Writers Collective mm -hmm. with Leonard D. Moore as a wonderful mentor, and it was within that group that he would inspire us with prompts that and a lot of them black history inspired um, he had us it was our task to write about Emmett Till and uh, that was very painful for me mm. um, to go back over his history um, and, and to revisit that um, it was like I really didn't want to do that but Leonard made me do that and I did produce poems that were powerful so I, I'm very very appreciative of Leonard and his efforts he inspired me the whole collective inspired me to write a series of poems and that were the basis of my first full-length collection the speed of our lives and a lot of the poems that are in family reunion are a result of working um, to taking the poems to the collective and asking their advice and just so I feel like now uh, post CAAWC in terms of um, actually getting up there to the Raleigh area to, to workshop um, I guess right now it's a time of reflection mm, okay. what what's the next I, I know I want to do uh, something about Harriet Tubman that I definitely want to write that collection so that's kind of down the road um, I feel like I have evolved um, in my uh, poetry process I feel like I'm getting better getting stronger the projects are different mm -hmm. you could look at hollering from the shack the speed of our lives and family reunion and see I'm writing about totally different that's okay subjects. right yeah yeah so, Justin, a little slightly different question for you. It's sort of a fill-in-the-blank, but you stretch it as you like. Uh, and, and here it is. I write because... I have to. Yeah. And what is it? There's something inside that uh, I want to express. Uh, I think, uh, well, I've always known, uh, even in my 20s and 30s, that I had a voice, that there was something within me that uh, wanted articulation, uh, 
the realities of earning a living and uh, supporting a family intervened, uh, I don't regret not having written in my 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, but I read extensively. I read in German and English, uh, and I also have a degree in under, uh, an undergraduate degree in Spanish and Latin American studies, and I lived in Latin America. Uh, and that, all of that, infor- and I studied Latin American literature, that informed... So you've got a lot to say then. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, I think so. Uh, when I can bring it to some meaningful point. Mm. Uh, and so I write because that, that's what I do right now. And it provides for me, uh, a, I suppose, an, an identity as well. I left the corporate world at age 62 uh, and... I just don't sit around. I'm not. I'm from a culture that doesn't. Uh, so you write standing up? No, I, I, I don't. Although so my, you do sit around, Justin? Yeah, I do sit around. Uh, yes, uh, but it's it's not yeah. idleness, I guess. Right, so right. I, you know, I don't know if I've answered the question. You, you have. So we got two final reads here today. Um, we're going to start with Grace. And we're going to be doing this thing with her poem called Performance Poetry. Grace, tell us what that is. Okay. Well, if you look at the Internet, uh, it defines it as a form of poetry intended to be performed as a dramatic monologue or exchange and frequently involving improvisation. Now, my own definition is that it is a type of poetry in which the voice and physical movement is employed to enhance amplify the delivery of a poem. I would say inclusion of acting, singing, and dancing is a goal I strive for in tribute to what I call old Hollywood as personified by Fred Astaire via his performance in Holiday Inn, a movie in which he sings, dances, and acts. Of course, there are other performing artists I can point to as inspirations for my own performance poetry, to name a few, Judy Garland, Ruby Dee, Cicely Tyson, and Barbara Streisand come to mind. Well, we, we, you know, this is radio, so they won't be able to see you dancing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, we're going we're gonna to do it anyway. The title of this one is what? This little little girlfriend. Little girlfriend. Anything you want to say about little girlfriend before we start? Um, it's your maternal grandmother, right? Uh, uh, this is about my paternal paternal grandmother. Grandmother. I'm sorry. And and there's a scrapbook, and right. you find a letter. Exactly in, in right. That scrapbook. From an unknown admirer. Right, exactly. Yeah, okay, well that might be enough to kind of get us going here. Don't go getting any thick ideas into your head about Warren. He likes dating a flotilla of women. Some slender as creeks, some wide as fields. I've seen him at least a half dozen times with some girl at the county fair buying her cotton candy, hitting the bull's eye for a pink parasol or a wide brim straw hat. If you date him, I'll give him six weeks before he turns to a girl with double dimples and small feet. Dating girls is like buying a pair of suspenders. He's got one for every season. If I were you, I wouldn't bother to meet him. Just skip over him like hors d'oeuvres at a dinner party. Spending time with him is like putting a down payment on a house that's built in a floodplain. You should also know he only dates fair-skinned girls Though you're a hue darker than what he's used to, he claims the tint of your cheek is richer than any shade of pink he's seen on a palette. He told me he first eyed you in front of a hut of an Episcopal church over in Tryon. Noticed how you slipped in and out of that church. Watching her, he said, is better than sipping orange juice with cognac. 
he would have asked you out before. At the sight of my fist, he paused, reversed his feet in the middle of a street. We'll stop by your place in the next day or two to see if you want to go dancing at a juke joint I discovered in Durham. Bobby. All right, Grace, you were moving on that one. Uh, yeah, it's, there's, I, I needed to be up and about. Know, you needed to be up and about. I had you strapped in that chair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, that that's interesting. I, I, you really bring out the enthusiasm, you know, in the voice uh, there, and uh, I, I find it interesting that after all that lecturing uh, by the admirer to uh, to, to this uh, your paternal grandmother, he then says, "Oh, and by the way, you know, if you'd like to go dancing, <laughs> right? Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So." Um, Justin, you've got one final piece here. Back to your Kansas roots, uh, this time about your mother. Can you set that up for us? Yes. Uh, this was based on an experience I had with my mother in 2010. I made several trips home to Kansas to help her clear the house that our family had lived in all those years. And uh, in the process, I discovered that she was stockpiling incandescent light bulbs. This was at a time when the U.S. was passing laws to phase out incandescent light bulbs and replace them with compact fluorescent lights. And she hated those. She couldn't see well with them. Um, and it, this is also a poem that took place about a year before her death. Of Light and Time. At my desk upstairs, Window plunking dark with rain, I bask in gleaming rays, hundred-watt beams of the bulb I fetched from my mother's stockpile. All those current-sucking, pear-shaped globes she laid away in her last months, fragile reminders of her incandescence, the way she burned. It was the fall we cleared our Kansas home. Amidst the sorting of a century, the stacking, packing, and throwing out, my mother led me to her hidden stash, 60, 75, 100-watt orbs of incorrectness, 40-watt appliance bulbs laid like eggs in padded plastic, the lot of them to be phased out and never made again, box after box of airless power hog geezers begging for final days in sockets. We loaded up my mother's great stores, shipped them 1,200 miles east. She would not die under compact fluorescence, by God. No ashen shroud of soulless light for her, no sickly shimmer to mock her fading or mimic the squamous cell secret veiling through her lungs. These days, I glow in my mother's hoarded radiance, bulbs aplenty for remaining years, time enough until my last strand of tungsten snaps, one final eye-searing flash and out. Well, with a flash and out, it's time for us to, to head out as well. I want to thank both of y'all for uh, coming on the show today. Before we leave, though, um, Grace, give us your website where people can find out more information. Oh, sure. You can go to mynameisgraceiwrite.com and look up about my books, and there's a sample poem from there. And uh, you can see my resume online. Great. And, and Justin, how about your website? JustinHunt.online. Not .com, but .online. And you've got uh, some pictures of this Kansas. I have uh, several photographs that I've taken myself, uh, poems that have been published, uh, a few very short excerpts from the memoir and a piece about the memoir, and, of course, the usual list of publications and sure. awards, that sort of thing. Well, thanks to both of y'all for coming on the show. Thank you, Thank Landis. you. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have Martin Clark. This was a live podcast that we did at Park Road Books in July. Martin Clark is a retired Virginia circuit court judge who spends legal thrillers with a twist, and he knows a thing or two about the legal system and the lawyers and the defendants who by choice or circumstance are wrapped up in it. He's been praised by Entertainment Weekly as our best legal thriller writer, and his latest book, The Substitution Order, is the focus of that episode. In a recent review by the New York Times, Alifar Burke says, The Substitution Order is not merely a good legal thriller, 
It's a great one. Clark cleverly weaves together a truly thrilling ending. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.